After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. I mean, there's that sense that, that we do everything in such a rush now and that we do five things at once always mm-hmm. that means that we we just cannot pay attention to the world that, that is asking for our attention you know we we don't spend time just existing within one paradigm at once Hello and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman. I'm the producer of this podcast. Today we're coming to you with episode 225, which is a conversation between Sharon and Catherine May. Catherine is an author, a international best-selling author, to be more specific. She's a podcaster, and today's conversation is mostly centered around her new book, Enchantment, Awakening Awe in an Anxious Age. This is Catherine's newest book that came out earlier in 2023. It was an instant New York Times bestseller, a Sunday Times bestseller. But Catherine is probably more known for her previous book, Wintering, which was such a massive international bestseller. It's a hybrid memoir. She's also been a presenter for On Being in their Future of Hope series. So this is one of my new favorite episodes. And a lot of this conversation centers around how we can come into a more vivid contact with life and learning to pay attention again in a different way, a new way. And of course, there is a lot looking at some of the Buddhist approach to that. Catherine is also just a beautiful writer, a beautiful speaker, and she's so deeply explored her own relationship to awe and how that has kind of expanded her whole way of relating to the world. That includes the natural world, but also not limiting awe to something that's just pretty, like a sunset, but the way we can just be real with ourselves and be messy, but also be really in direct contact with life as it's happening around us. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation a lot. I know I did. Before we get to the episode, a few announcements for you. 
If you haven't heard, Sharon has a new book coming out, October 10th, Finding Your Way. And this is her second brand new book this year, (laughs) which is a lot of the fruits of her time in quarantine coming into the world. This is a book unlike any other that Sharon has put out. It is a full-color illustrated gift book. It's kind of like a little coffee table book. And it centers around some of Sharon's most popular quotes, as well as quotes from some other incredible figures. And these small essays that Sharon has written around each of the quotes... So it's really a book that I think is perfect for someone who maybe isn't familiar with Sharon's work, maybe not a meditator, but it's that kind of book you can open to any page and walk away with a little nugget to pick you up, to inspire you, to encourage you. And we've got a few things happening for this book release. The first is that you can pre-order the book today and our publisher is offering a 20% discount on the book if you pre-order it. So if you go to our website, you can find that link and pre-order a copy. And if you pre-order, you can also receive this free poster. It's an illustration that's inspired by the book. So our publisher will mail you one of those if you fill out the little form with your pre-order. Also, Sharon's going to be doing a book launch event on October 10th. It's hosted by the Insight Meditation Society's Book Club. And if you go to our website, you can join us there. So let's get to today's conversation. Sharon Salzberg and Catherine May. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be together with you again and um, looking forward to sharing you and your work with our listeners out there. So tell me how you are and where you are. Where are you beaming in from? <laughs> yeah, beaming in. Um, I am at home in Whitstable in the very southeast of England. Mm. Um, so I live about a five minute walk away from the sea. Um, and it's a beautiful day, actually. It's uh, it's sunny and I can hear the seagulls. I, I worry that you guys can hear the seagulls too, because quite often people notice them. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but maybe that's like a little bit of texture. I don't know. <laughs> well, I promise if I hear a seagull, I'll say, what's that? What's that? What's that noise? I know. It's weird. I mean, I I don't notice them that much because they're just this constant background to my life but um other people can hear them and get all excited and say it's like be by the seaside (laughs) that's beautiful so many congratulations on your new book enchantment awakening wonder in an anxious age which came out this past spring of 2023 i think that's a beautiful title oh thank you it's uh we we wrestled with the title a little because I I felt very strongly that I wanted to talk about enchantment simply because we so often talk about disenchantment, you know, and, and that's a conversation that we fall so easily into, this sort of cynicism and sense that everything's terrible and there's nothing that can be done about it. 
And I, I really wanted the word enchantment to feel maybe even a little bit challenging to people, um, a little bit uh, terrifyingly positive for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we did wrestle with it because we were, we were scared it was going to frighten people off. Mm. I know that feeling, actually. <laughs> and I also noticed that, interestingly uh, to me, the book's subtitle is slightly different between the U.S. and the U.K. editions. The U.K. edition is Reawakening Wonder in an Exhausted Age, and the U.S. edition yeah. is Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. So I'm wondering yeah. if that was intentional, if we we're actually more anxious, which, I mean, <laughs> most people I talk to here in the U.S. would describe themselves as anxious and exhausted. Yes, I yeah, I think I could have just put a list in that. I, I mean, honestly... My chosen subtitle for both of them was Awakening and uh, Awakening Wonder in a Burned Out Age. So I didn't get my, <laughs> I didn't get my wish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it's interesting, isn't it, that the editors in different countries felt like a different subtitle resonated better. And yeah. I, of course, I, you know, I'm happy to defer to that. But um, isn't it interesting that in the UK we're more more kind of comfortable with talking about being exhausted mm-hmm. and Americans are more you know comfy with expressing anxiety like that that it tells such a lot about those different societies whereas I'm just all about being burnt out all the time yeah. obviously no, that, that's great. <laughs> um, there's a word in uh, the Pali language of the original Buddhist text that is longing for a good translation and uh, it, it's kind of considered the near enemy of compassion it's like the state that can masquerade as compassion but isn't really and it's Mm. close enough so that on a superficial level it can look like compassion but it's not uh Mm. recently a a translator scholar said to me really it's burnout that's the state you know where one acknowledges the suffering one is aware of it but it's like too much you know yeah and that that sense that you i mean there's that there's a term isn't there uh, compassion fatigue yeah which i think is so very real at the moment that that sense that you haven't got anything left in you to to carry on caring that's right um and yeah that sounds like a really very useful word for, for yeah. right now so mm. i'd like to start with a, a short passage from your book um which reads mm. I've lost some fundamental part of my knowing, some elemental human feeling. Without it, the world feels like tap water left overnight, flat and chemical, devoid of life, and like lightning seeking earth. Uneasy, I carry the prickle of potential energy in my limbs, ever deferred from the point of contact, the moment of release. Instead, it gathers in me, massing like a storm that never comes. I lack the language to even describe it, this vast, unsettled sense that I am slipping over the glassy surface of things, afraid of what lurks beneath. I need a better way to walk through this life. I want to be enchanted again. How beautiful and evocative of that. It sounds great when you read it, honestly. (laughs) I love listening to that. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, it's everything. It's both the burnout, the almost despair, the um, the caring, and wishing one could actually 
move from the caring and I need a better way to walk through this life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the word in that, that, that sort of draws me the most is contact. You know, this sense that we have lost a feeling of direct contact with so many different things, you know, and I think that expresses it in everything from the way that technology is now so mysterious to us, you know, that if my computer broke, I couldn't fix it. Whereas when I was growing up, I think pretty much most things that I came into contact with, I had a chance of fixing them if I knew how. And now that's been taken away from us. Like our our sort of physical expertise in the world has gone. But also this sense of contact with, the divine with how we feel even um and with with our pleasure and with our joy Every, everything's happening at one remove and i and i really meditated a lot on this this word contact when i began to write the book it seemed really crucial to me well it's interesting because uh writing um like zooming perhaps uh can yeah. feel like being out of contact, but it's uh, it's so intimate in its own way. Yeah, I I used to in my previous job, I used to work with visual artists, and they <laughs> the sort of the act of writing always seemed so bloodless to them. Um, and it, you know, I remember talking to them a lot about this, and and they always saw themselves as, as doing something really physical and having this like direct contact with the medium they worked in and they couldn't understand why I didn't want that Mm -hmm. whereas to me that's that's what I seek through writing as well like I'm I'm often circling something I'm getting closer and closer to exploring a feeling or a desire or a need and I I often don't get there very quickly I have to keep working through layers and layers until I get that electric hit of contact um and I, and that's that's exactly why I do it. I think I'm I'm looking for that over and over mm-hmm. again. Yeah, one one of the things that struck me very strongly in that passage was the sense of seeking. It's like there's something very alive in it, you know, mm. as sort of flat and chemical, <laughs> devoid of life. Yeah, as, as it yeah. may seem, uh, there's something yeah. in you as the writer and expressing it for the rest of us that is very vital and alive, that is almost an essential aspect of being human that wants a better way to walk through this life. Mm. I, I, think I, <laughs> I think I often experience being human as a state of restlessness, uh-huh. you know, that, that nothing uh, is ever, ever seems permanent or final to me. Um, and I, I don't even want it to be, I don't think. But that seeking that sense that you're looking for what's underneath everything and you're looking to, to kind of unpeel layers of, of life to, to get to that core of it mm-hmm. um, is, yeah, it's, it's definitely everything that, that drives me. I think mm-hmm. I, I, I find it hard to understand people that don't have that restlessness, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it, it seems really fundamental to me. Well, that's very interesting too, and it makes me think <laughs> of uh, the ways we pay attention, and even um, 
the quality of awe, you know, which mm. has a lot to do with how we pay attention and what we pay attention to, I think, because um, I wouldn't describe myself as a restless person at all. It's more mm. uh, my issues on the other side, like, let's pick up the energy <laughs> a little bit, you know. Uh, <laughs> um but I can see that uh, the quality of attention is absolutely crucial, you know, because without paying attention more fully or uh, more cleanly in a way, without so much assumption and ideas of what to expect and um, yeah. without a kind of cleaner, clearer, better attention, I'm not going to connect to anything, mm. you know, the cup of tea I'm drinking or the person in front of me that's speaking yeah. or, or the world around me. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, there's that sense that, that we do everything in such a rush now and that we do five things at once always. Mm -hmm. That means that we, we just cannot pay attention to the world that, that is asking for our attention. You know, we, we don't spend time just, existing within one paradigm at once mm -hmm. um, and I've you know like I, I say that in full recognition that I definitely do it too you know I, I would quite often be watching tv and doing a crossword at the same time for example mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I absolutely try and practice paying attention to one thing at a time as often as I can and I you know draw myself back into to not existing within that constant noise. Um, and I, I find, you know, like people often begin interviews with me by asking, what do we need to do to feel awe? How can we bring that about? And I don't think that's the question in lots of ways. I think the question is, how can I learn to pay attention again? Because the wonder, the awe, the fascination will flow from that. It's, the, the world is fundamentally fascinating but we have to make space to allow that fascination to, to arrive. And, and actually, that means doing one thing at a time. It means slowing down a bit. It means not overlooking our calendars. Um, but the, the awe itself is, is, is right there, I think. Um, it's just that we have to train our attention a little bit differently. I, I would completely wholeheartedly agree with that and my favorite word um because I, I realize I, I tend to have a favorite word uh, for a long period actually it was poignant um and that Ooh, nice. that sense of compassion which mm. is a little bit heartbreaking a little bit sometimes you know not hopefully so much that mm. you just need to go back to bed because then it's compassion fatigue or empathy fatigue or uh burnout you know but but nowadays, my favorite word actually is emergent. <clears throat> because I, I feel like so many of the things I want or we want, we seek love, connection, awe, um, clarity, are emergent properties of the way we pay attention. Mm. And if we address that question of attention, many of the things we long for will emerge. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the key to so very much, isn't it? And I also like emergent in terms of thinking about the world at the moment because it 
it feels to me that there is so much that is emergent right now. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a cycle that's closed and I call it's opening up again. And I don't think any one of us know how to truly understand it at the moment. But being this this sort of uncontrollable optimist, which I, I haven't always been, <laughs> but apparently I am these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> I and, and paying attention to those things, like I can't help but notice that there are some some really incredible emergent values that, that are coming in and that are settling themselves upon us. And um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to share your favorite word. At the I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't mind sharing. <laughs> yeah, that was wonderful. Um, we'll have to keep checking in with one another and watch what emerges. Over time, because I see my own has yeah. shifted. So. Mm. I've heard or read that this book is almost in sequence with Wintering, which was your last book, uh, mm. almost like a, a next natural step. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I that was the question I was asking myself when I was writing it, certainly, is, is you know, literally, well, well, what do I write next? And I mean, that was a, it was a hard thing to do because um, I, I, you know, I was aware by the time I sat down to write Enchantment that wintering had meant so much to so many people. And I, I found that kind of mysterious, if I'm honest, that, that it had had that level of impact. I just, I had not expected it. And I didn't, I'm still working through the process of understanding that, honestly. Um, and understanding the depth of feeling that there is around that book. I mean, I, I spent a long time denying that there was that depth of feeling, and I, I know I really, at least I've moved on from there. But um, I, it, it left me at a bit of a loss to think about what I could possibly say next that would help, you know, and that would yeah. speak into this moment. Um, and I, I started writing it when uh, we were just at the beginning of the pandemic and I knew that by the time it was published I, the world was completely unpredictable to me you know I we know that it takes a long time for a book to come into the world and so mm -hmm. I was thinking well what can I possibly say that's gonna matter then mm -hmm. um and so yeah I, I suppose I really turned it took me a long time it took me a lot of drafts but to get to thinking about what I needed in that moment, which was that I felt like a layer of dust had fallen over me and that I needed to renew my sense of, of contact with the world. Mm -hmm. um, but also I think that I needed to challenge some of my very long-standing approaches to the world, which, you know, were uncomfortable with expressing something as soft as that and as, as uncynical as that you know and I, I it was a it was a moment for me of shedding a bit of the teenage me <laughs> really and uh you know realizing that she'd been wrong about a lot of things so yeah it was it felt quite revolutionary for me to write it definitely well that's beautiful it also in some ways parallels my process in the beginning of the pandemic which is oh, like, really I kept asking myself what's still true you know, on a certain level of expectation, you know, I expected to be in New York City or traveling. Instead, I was in Barry, mm. Massachusetts, you know, where I have a home. And yeah. 
Uh, I was living in the country. I came up here from New York uh, thinking I'd be here for two weeks. And it was eight months before I got back to New York for the first time. Um, and everything was different. And the retreat center that I had co-founded that was such a, a deep part of my own heart had to close. Who knew? Mm. If we'd ever be that able to. That must have been a huge loss. It was There's a huge loss. There's a kind of rhythm in that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And we, you know, we started it in 1976. And mm. all I kept thinking is, I want to make it to 50 years. I just, I, why can't we make it to 50 years? And now I look at that and I think, it's all right. Whatever happens, you know, happens. But yeah. I, I, I was just... Yeah on fire. Like I have to, we have to make it to 50 years. And so we went online. We, we began teaching online, which had never been a strong component really. Um, mm, mm. before, and it was inventing for us. It was like reinventing ourselves. And, uh, and then the staff who were still here and, you know, who needed work and I mean, it was such a complex mm. system. And I kept thinking, what's still true? Like what, what can you rely on? You know, uh, as a kind of North star mm-hmm. as something to help you make choices or guide your actions or um, decide what's right for today, whatever it might be. And uh, it's a very powerful process just to ask that, like what uh, you did it when you said, what's in a way what's deeper, you know? Yeah. What's yeah. even deeper than this uh, presentation to the world that I did. Mm. I'm just, uh, I, I'm just kind of processing what that must have been like yeah, for you, yeah. really, because it's, I mean, it's that huge change that comes to you totally without your, you know, without any choice involved. Mm-hmm. But that that sense of reorientation that I always find so interesting in in people that we are capable of feeling absolute despair. Mm-hmm. And rolling from that into a completely new vision of how life's going to be. And it's almost seamless. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's obviously what you had to do. That's not to negate the suffering that was involved, but you obviously yeah. found this, this completely new way to do it. Yeah. It's like really, um, amazed, you know, at the human capacity. And it comes down, I think, in some ways again, to awareness or attention or mindfulness that we can look again, we can be more fully present. We can look at our assumptions mm-hmm. and think, well, maybe it's not going to be the old way. Maybe it's going to be a new way. And um, yeah. that which may also be the engine of our ability to find awe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I find awe in, in that. I mean, you know, I get lots and lots of letters from people about just these kind of situations because that's, that's what they read into wintering that's that's why they've responded to wintering and I, I find it it does it it really does trigger my sense of awe to hear how people scramble <laughs> yeah. yeah um but they're they see it seems to me that a key part of that process is getting to an acceptance of what is you know, mm-hmm. what is right now? What situation am I actually in as opposed to the situation I think I should be in or I want to be in? Um, and and that is, that's almost the, the work of a moment. It can take a long time to get there, but when it comes, when you truly absorb 
like, oh, this is how it's happening now. This this is this is not in my control, and this is what I'm being presented with. People have got this incredible capacity to to then just completely switch realities almost into the into the current one. I love that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely beautiful, and, and you're describing it beautifully. I think it's also um, it reminds me of something that I found uh, a surprise. You know, it was a, sort of a, a lacking in my own understanding, which was that I was so accustomed to thinking of awe, uh, partly because of the research that I was familiar with, having mm-hmm. to do with the natural world. You know, like research would be done with people going into, you know, a grand forest somewhere and seeing yeah. the immensity of the yeah. trees and feeling awe at at their lifespan, at their majesty and all of that. And uh, yeah. so I assumed it was like, really where people were um, contouring their understanding of on turned out that both through readings I did and through understanding more about where the research was going, that more mm. people, it seems feel awe at human endeavor than at, you know, magnificent trees that somebody made mm. it and they survived or, or look at that adversity and, and look at how they cared about others during it. And, uh, that yeah. really uh, helped me. It really inspired me. I think, look at that. We we can have tremendous awe for one another. Mm, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I when I began writing the book, I started with those. I mean, traditional kind of expressions of awe. You know, I I thought about the giant redwood trees, and I thought about mountains and things like that. And I think I was rescued from that track of thinking by the pandemic funnily enough in that I had this kind of desolate moment of thinking well if I'm going to write about awe then I need to go to a mountain and I can't go to a mountain because I'm in lockdown and I felt terribly sorry for myself about that for for a couple of weeks and and then this realization kicked in that said that's so that's such a recent idea of awe that it's part of tourism almost you know that it's a a thing that you go to visit on holiday mm-hmm. and you have a nice time and you see something beautiful and you take a photo and you put it on Instagram and everyone admires you for going there somehow I'm not, I'm not sure how that works but that seems to be what happens um and there you go you've arranged your all and of course most people can't do that and I suddenly got filled with this sort of political kind of uprising of like right well then it's my responsibility to talk about awe in a completely different way and to figure out how how we how everybody can find it how people that are confined to their houses can find it people who are sick people who are caring for someone people who don't have enough money to travel to these remarkable locations and I and that really totally changed the course of the book and there was, funny enough, a chapter that I ended up cutting because I couldn't make it fit about experiencing awe at a protest march mm. and, and the awe that came from being amongst this mass of people who were all pointed in the same direction and feel and you know you could you could feel the the deep passion in the in the room when you were amongst them um, and I and yeah that that was that was kind of a touchstone for me really about thinking about how awe 
is not just about prettiness. You know, it's not just about something nice to see and it's not something we can necessarily take a photograph of. Mm-hmm. And going back to uh, your comments about acceptance has mm. me think of the um, this quotation from the late theologian Howard Thurman who talked about um, looking at the world with quiet eyes mm. as a way of encountering the world in a new way and how it sounds perhaps passive or quietistic, but it's really not. It's that acceptance is kind of the essential foundation for movement, for action. Otherwise, we're just kind of in battle with what is rather than starting from a very different place. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I really have gone deep into into the kind of practice of acknowledging what I don't know lately and what I don't know how to solve. Um, because actually, I almost think some of the trouble we're in is caused by people wanting to rush forward with a solution before they've really engaged with the fullness of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, that's a difficult place to be in. I was was watching a documentary by a a UK environmental presenter, TV presenter called Chris Packham this week, and he uh, he's just made a program basically asking, "Well, what do we do next? Um, Do we start? You know, is it time for mass civil disobedience? Will that even work?" And what I admired in it, and it was something that I'd not really seen hitting the mainstream too much before was his he he's just ability to reside in his own doubt and his complete uncertainty and to really explore the lack of clarity about what will what will do something you know or what will make others take action what will convince people of the urgent danger that we're in um and that it's as you say that could seem to be really passive it could seem to be a really useless approach but actually I think we need to go through that stage it's a crucial stage to to go through before we know begin to understand what to do it's a it's an exploration phase because what we know is that what used to work doesn't work anymore in terms of the way we speak to each other in terms of the way we take action we need new ways and yeah yeah that state of of watching and listening um it's such a soft thing to do and I I think that softness is so important for us to find at at this particular phase in our history you know you tell the story in the book about first learning meditation and that it's actually about (laughs) learning to take off your shoes I'm wondering if you could share that story yeah so I I learned uh, meditation I'd wanted to do it for a long time, but I was propelled into it by, um, you know, a huge personal crisis. And I was incredibly anxious and and so deeply unsettled that I think it allowed me to make this huge change. Um, And I and the teacher that I worked with, he was very firm that you had to just you had to just do the thing you know <laughs> like, and I try to explain this to other people mm-hmm. now and I, I really admire the way he got it across me because it is hard to convince people of this that you actually have to go into meditation expecting 
very little from it. You know? yeah. <laughs> if you're going in seeking a psychedelic experience with a full light show, you know, like some sort that's of direct problem. revelation. <laughs> that's, that's, it's just not going to work. Um, but I kept coming back to him and, and saying, I feel really weird. He was like, great, go and meditate. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and I think, you know, that time was a real period of learning for me about, about, all I had to do was take off my shoes and make contact with the ground. That was what I, that was what I was craving. That was what I needed to do in order to, to get there. But also that could, that could just be the end result in itself. Like I didn't have to be looking for anything bigger than that. It was actually this very beautiful, small moment of connection that I, that was actually the thing that I needed to heal me. And it, it really, really did. Um, but it was that very humble commitment to going back and sitting in meditation and letting that be the end in itself <laughs> yeah. and not being like the special chosen one that gets the special experience. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm sure you've battled this personally many times with lots and lots of students over the years. And in myself, you know, because of what it's coming yeah. up in my mind. Yeah. It's beautiful and um, was, uh, you know, sometimes I think looking back at my life that I'm learning the same lesson over and over again, but hopefully at a deeper level each time because. Yeah, we, we hope. Think, but, oh, yeah. In, you know, in 1971, this teacher said this to me and 1974, this other teacher said kind of a similar thing to me. And each time it was this great opening and in 1984, I'd already been practicing meditation for like uh, almost 14 years. And we brought this Burmese teacher, Saida Upandita, from Burma, which was very hard to do in those days and probably again. And uh, he taught a three-month retreat that I sat under his guidance, never having met him before. And we were meeting him six days a week for these short meetings just to describe our practice. And we were told to be able to describe one sitting and one walking period of meditation to him. And so most of us took notes, but before I could read any of my notes, he would look at me and say something like for a long, long period, he would look at me and say, tell me everything you noticed when you took off your shoes, which was nothing. So I'd leave. That was the end <laughs> of the meeting. And I, I'd sit and walk as mindful as I could and take off my shoes as mindful as I could. And then I'd come in the next day and he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you drank a cup of tea, which was nothing. So, <laughs> I'd leave and I, you know, take off my shoes as mindfully as I could in case he went back to that and, you know, drink the cup of tea as mindfully as I could, feeling the warmth of the teacup and smelling the tea and tasting the tea. And I'd come in the next day and he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face, which was nothing. So I quickly saw where things were going. And I called it in my mind the torment of continuity. But of course, in reality, it was fabulous because everything mattered as much as everything else yeah 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 and <laughs> that's just such a wonderful way of of instilling <laughs> instilling yeah. that in your mind I love that but I, I also I also think about how um how we how I worry that we're learning to perform that contact rather than to actually have it yeah you know like I as you were saying about you know what did you notice about drinking your cup of tea 
I think about all of those images I've seen on Instagram of a woman. I call her yoga girl. Um, she's <laughs> <laughs> she's like the kind of perfect, the perfect white skinny woman yeah. in her like per- perfect yoga gear. And, you know, she's either sitting in a, a perfect lotus <laughs> um, or she's, you know, she's really cherishing her cup of tea, like really properly cherishing it, you know. And I... And I think we we get handed this vision of what perfect practice looks like um, and we believe in it and we believe in it a little too much because actually the truth of living, of, of being in that in that constant, you know, mindful, that pursuit of mindfulness, that, that kind of way of life is that it looks really disorderly from the outside and it mm-hmm. feels quite disorderly. And it's not full of these moments of Instagrammable bliss. You know? <laughs> it's actually it's actually a little more patchy than that for most mm-hmm. of us. Um, and I I'm always seeking to convey that as my experience. You know that oh god, I just burnt myself on the cup of tea instead. You know? <laughs> <laughs> How do they hold those hot cups of tea in two hands? I just I don't think they're drinking very good tea, honestly. Well, that's why the subtitle of your book in either country is so great because um, what's the reality? You know, we're anxious or we're exhausted or or we're upset or we're afraid or, you know, that is the reality. And so uh, yeah. it can't all be sweetness and light, you know, and still be real. Um, no, no. And, and the last thing we should all start doing is – trying to make it look more like we're experiencing that like that's the that's yeah. the opposite of of a useful approach to this it's, it's much better to wade into the the suffering and the chaos I think um and and to just be there like that's that's one of the greatest things you can learn to do sometimes the other side though I will say which also just occurred to me is that sometimes we just need a break you know we need respite and oh, yeah. the delight of a nice cup of tea <laughs> Yes, just, just have your cup of tea, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and we're kind of fortified yeah, to right. look at the anxiety and, and deal with the suffering, which is so immense sometimes. It, yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to get the balance right when talking about these things, I find, because yeah. sometimes we just need to escape ourselves. You know, like it, there's a there's a period of time when it's good to sit with these things, but we also need to learn when to to just move on to do something else for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's you know that's the kind of fine balance of life skill that that we find it very hard to communicate these days. You know, it's not an absolute like sometimes be with the trouble, sometimes watch an episode of Friends and and just forget about your existence for a little while, mm-hmm. and, and you'll feel mm-hmm. better after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm really uh, uh, drawn to that. You know, in so many ways that. In fu- in funny way, like, and now I'm moving closer to the word balance and an appreciation of it. I used to think of balance as mediocrity. I thought, well, that's boring, you know. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's something so um, different than that, you know. If you feel like so many beautiful things can emerge if our mm. being were only more in balance, you know, if our yeah. pace was only a little more balanced, or we had options. We thought, mm. you know what? I can't right now. I need to drink this cup of tea or I need to watch an episode of Friends or or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've 
written a little bit about balance in the last couple of years as well in terms of that what balance might actually look like is doing both extremes rather than living in this perfect kind of midway path you know that um mm-hmm. that I find that I quite often need to do both and that my behavior across a year balances but yeah within within the moment we might be living in in one extreme or another but across a, a longer period of time that looks like balance um and I I often think about that as the the idea that you know when water's boiling if you measure different points of it it will be all sorts of different temperatures but overall we get this this sense of of balance um and I think it's another way of saying you don't have to get it perfectly right all the time mm-hmm. sometimes it's about exploring the edges of things and, and then coming back to the middle yeah beautiful and most of the thing of um some years ago my pre-pandemic book in terms of writing it but it was released right in the uh part mm-hmm. of it um was called real change yeah. Is about the ways that interchange and transformation can empower us as change makers in the world. And in that book, one of the things I wrote about is the necessity of joy and goodness for activists. You know, it's that side of things for that balance. Mm. Because here are people who are right on the front lines of suffering, either in their personal lives and their family or community or their livelihood, mm. and um, working so hard to right the world's injustices to do what we can and and how it can be so important and so difficult to have moments to just enjoy something it really is and um all the people i talked to you know for that book i think every single one of them struggled with that thing that just to (laughs) it came out uh, with Mm. predominantly with this one friend who the guilt he felt just to enjoy a banana you know it was pretty Um, immense you know yeah. Um, so I'm curious about yeah. your own impressions of this and the blocks we may have to experience enchantment. Yeah, well, actually, I, I've had some, you know, some people say very directly to me, well, how can I let myself do that? You know, how can I allow myself to have pleasure almost when the world's on fire? Yeah. And I think my honest answer to that is, I mean, it's twofold because, you know, on a very basic level, there's a long fight ahead of us and we need to be able to restore ourselves and to take enormous care of ourselves to sustain long-term activism and long-term change rather than to burn out very quickly, which is is what we'll do if we don't have these moments of, of not just rest, but joy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also think in a, in a kind of, in a more political way, um, you know, the bad guys make good, being bad look fun, you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, yeah. the people who are behaving the most destructively make it look great, great fun. And that's their argument that, you know, we cannot let these puritanical people take away our pleasure and our joy Mm -hmm. and I think we have a responsibility to show our joy too Mm -hmm. to really manifest it to really show 
what we're fighting for, what what the good, what the what, I'm going to even say fun. I don't like the word fun. I'm even going to say fun. Like, where's the pleasure? Where's the fun? Where's the joy? Where's the happiness in what we're arguing for in this better world that we're arguing for, where people are kinder and more considerate to each other, where they take better care of their planet, where they, you know, with all their being resist violence. Um, we need to make, we need to sh- not just make it look joyful in, in a false way, but we need to show what a joyful thing that is. And so we should lean into that. You know, we should, we should be taking those moments of pleasure because that's ultimately what this is about. This is what this battle is, is for that seems to be raging across the world at the moment. Um, it's a set of values and, and yeah, but it does, it certainly comes up a lot for me. Well, a life of uh, attention and curiosity and connection and contact and uh, mm. awe. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. You know? <laughs> well, we know that, Sharon. <laughs> right. Balance. I should, I should bring in balance because uh, certainly, you know, that clarity is so important not to be overriding or overlooking the, the very real distress and pain and difficulty that there is and somehow being able to hold both um, the joy and the possibility and the movement and the um, very real pain that a lot of people go through in life and systems support in some cases. And um, to hold them both implies the kind of openness and expansiveness and freedom in our own minds, which is kind of the greatest joy. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately I think maybe that joy doesn't transmit very well as a TV show, you know, it's, it's quiet. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, maybe like, it doesn't show extreme emotions or or whatever. Um, But I, it's a much it's a much nicer way to live um and i and and that's because it has the capacity to integrate pain into its worldview and integrate suffering and to acknowledge people's mm-hmm. struggles um rather than to reject anyone who's struggling or to deny that it's happening or to kind of constantly push it back um and to me that it just feels so urgent to express um and so yeah that that takes me back to choosing a word like enchantment (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it's great um the natural world is such a big part of this book and your life and one of the things that strikes me about the natural world and that that reflection is how it relates to interconnection in the buddhist framework that um, however alone or separate we might feel, we're actually part of a vast network of of yeah. life. And um, what happens over here is not separate from over there. And I'd love to hear your thoughts mm-hmm. about interconnection and this more vivid connection to nature. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've put it really well, actually. I, I, I think that when we talk about interconnection, we often assume that that's a human interconnection and that that derives directly from being in the company of other people. Um, but I, I experience it really differently to that. I 
I feel like the interconnection is bigger. It's planetary. It's with landscape. It's with with uh, with animals, with plants. You know, it's it's about feeling the sentience of the entire system and the the way that we are not the master of it, but that we're absorbed into it, that we're part of it, that we're part of this huge being. Um, that that's how that expresses for me, really. Um, but also for me, and you know, I, I always write from my perspective as an autistic person. Um, I need time in solitude and in reflection to really feel that human connection. Like re- social relationships take a long time to process for me, um, and I I need. I need my time. I need my time walking. I need my time swimming. I need my time sitting in the woods um, to to really process what I've learned from people in my last bout of contact with them. And it's often at those moments when I actually feel closest to them, when I feel like I'm truly able to engage with their needs and, and what they're telling me. And, and you know how that relationship's expressing itself um and so yeah i i think there's a a sort of mode of thought that says that taking time to yourself going into contemplation is selfish and it's isolative um but my my experience of it is the opposite i feel like i come back as a better friend a better family member a better parent when I've had that engagement with people that I that comes from from quiet from silence. Mm. Mm. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I don't want it to stop, but we're nearing the end. I'm already thinking <laughs> about. Uh, oh, I can have you back when we talk about creativity. Oh boy, it's great. Oh yeah, uh, please do have me back. It's been I, so nice I, I to talk to you. <laughs> I'm wondering if, uh, as we close the conversation, you could um, give us a, a reading from the book. Oh, I'd love to. Um, so this is a little bit in the section on fire. In summer months, I'm in the business of catching moths. Where there is a lit bulb and an open window, I'm there too cupping my hands around a fluttering form that's determined to hurl itself against the light. Both my husband and Bert are afraid of them. They're too quick, too intent. I don't think they mean to menace us. It's just that we're invisible to them, a thing of such scale that we're beyond perception. I will not have them batted at with a newspaper So I clamber over the kitchen table and balance on the backs of chairs to reach them before setting them loose into the night. It's a thankless task because soon they're back again, bumping against the glass. It must be such a bafflement to them, this invisible barrier between desire and possibility. We are more moth than we know. Small, frustrated, capable of only tickling a world that we wish would feel our heft. We share that attraction towards the brightest object in our field of view, an equal fascination with candles and conflagrations. 
We sense the danger, but we can't look away. In fact, we're drawn to circle it endlessly, getting closer and closer until it consumes us. Even when we think the sky might be falling, we stay to watch. It's elemental to us, this alertness, this panicked, flitting attention. Fire is the shadow side of enchantment, the dark, gleaming sorcery from which we can't tear our gaze. It shows us the wild danger that still resides in nature, the power it retains to devour and destroy. It is impolite, contagious, capable of catching from house to house while we stand helpless. It licks our palms like a moth in cupped hands. We have not understood this earth's full potency until we have recognised fire. I'm now trying to close the book so quietly that you can't hear it, but I'm failing. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very beautiful. Thank you. Um, You're an inspiring writer, really. It's it's beautiful. Um, The feeling is really mutual. So it's just been lovely to talk to you again. Well, it's lovely speaking to you again. Now I want to go to England and I haven't gone anywhere in years. <laughs> um, oh, come, 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 come. <laughs> thank you. And for everybody listening, uh, I really recommend getting a copy of Catherine's new book, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age, which is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats wherever books are sold. Thank you so much. Hey folks, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Catherine's work, to get a copy of Enchantment, or any of her other books, you can visit her website, katherine-may.co.uk. And for more on Sharon's teachings, her many online offerings, or to pre-order a copy of her new book, Finding Your Way, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. <laughs>